Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our fourth season, but we remain just as excited as ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here, we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show in our July theme of food production. And today we're going to focus in on the intersection of environment and economics. Now, food production is absolutely essential, an essential part of our daily lives, and it's impossible to separate food production from our environment. Food, which is a primary purpose of agriculture, is essential for all living organisms to survive and flourish. But for human beings, Food transcends the biological needs and has long been an integral part of social life and culture. Over the past century, the food system has done very well in terms of producing enough food to outpace population growth and in reducing the real price of food to make it more accessible. Indeed, agriculture is an economic engine. It can help reduce poverty, for about 75% of the world's poor who live in rural areas and work mainly in farming. It can raise incomes. It can improve food security and benefit the environment. But there are significant trade-offs for all of us that have become more and more pressing with each passing day. And yet, against this significant contribution to global well-being, the global food system, as currently organized, is not doing very well for its purposes. It imposes very high environmental and health costs ranging from greenhouse gas emissions, land degradation, water and air pollution, overdrawn aquifers, and biodiversity loss, all the way to foodborne diseases, growing antimicrobial resistance, and persistent under and malnourished children, as well as rising obesity. So, what is the net verdict? Is the global food system adding or subtracting monetary value? Well, it is estimated that the value of global agricultural production is just over $5 trillion, and it's estimated that the food system generates two to five times as much value as farm production itself. Now, we know, for example, in the U.S., for every $1 spent on food by the U.S. consumer, a mere 11 cents are accounted uh, by economic activity on farms, while the rest accrues to numerous activities associated with transforming, delivering, or increasingly preparing the food Americans enjoy on a daily basis. The same is true in the United Kingdom, where agriculture accounts for only 10% of the value of the food system. And since the after-the-farm 
to the on-the-farm ratio of value in, in the food system, it's much lower in developing countries. Its estimated value of the global food system is roughly $8 trillion or 10% of the $80 trillion global economy. Now, the calculation of environmental and health costs are less, much less straightforward. And environmental and health costs are not reflected in the current market prices of our associated food commodities. Nevertheless, these costs are significant, they are growing, and estimates could point to priority challenges and trigger important conversations around food policy solutions. It's estimated that negative impacts associated with the way the current food system operates are at least $6 trillion. And conservatively speaking, and only accounts for about five externalities of the current food system that existing studies have been able to put a value to. And those are namely malnutrition, food loss and waste, food safety, land degradation, and the greenhouse emissions from current agriculture practices. There are also likely substantial costs associated with other issues that have not yet been accounted for. So who will pay these costs? Well, everyone pays the public health cost of an increase in diet-related diseases through gradually increasing taxes as well as health care. But the substantial costs due to environmental and natural resource damage will primarily be paid for by our future generations as food production becomes much more difficult on a significantly eroded resource base and in a much more hostile climate. The risk that some of these costs will continue to rise exponentially, posing a significant threat to future ecological and hence economic stability, is significant. Now, these shocking numbers only matter if they can motivate us all to action. Fortunately, technologies and practices really already exist that can make agriculture and the broader food production system more climate smart and more environmentally friendly. The food and agriculture sector is almost entirely under private ownership and is composed of an estimated 2.1 million farms, approximately 950,000 restaurants, and more than 200,000 registered food manufacturing, processing, and storage facilities. And so this sector accounts roughly for about one-fifth of our nation's economic activity. That's a lot. Now, the food and agriculture sector has some critical dependencies with other sectors, uh, but particularly uh, food and agriculture has critical dependencies on water and wastewater systems that they depend on for clean irrigation and process water, critical dependencies on the transportation systems for the critical and necessary movement of products and livestock. There's a critical dependency on energy to power the equipment needed for agriculture production and food processing that we'd like to minimize, and critical dependency on chemicals. Again, we'd like to minimize these uh, for fertilizers and pesticides used in the production of crops. So this is a lot. But here today to help us explore and unpack some of this are two experts, and they're going to make us smarter. With us today are Sean Cash. Sean is an economist and the Bergstrom Foundation professor at the Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy at Tufts University. Sean teaches and conducts research on the consumer behavior around food, nutrition, and the environment, as well as environmental impacts in food production. 
Sean is the founding co-editor of the Food Policy and Economics section of Frontiers in Nutrition, and he was also editor of the Canadian Journal of Agriculture Economics. Welcome, Sean, and did I get all of that right? Yes, you did, and thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Sean, for making time to be with us today. Our other guest is Doug Petrie. Doug is with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And the World Business Council is a CEO-led community of over 200 of the world's leading sustainable businesses working collectively to accelerate the system transformations needed for a net zero, nature positive, and more equitable future. And there, Sean manages their One Planet Business for Biodiversity. And this is a project within their agriculture and food pathway. It's an action-oriented, cross-sectional coalition of more than 30 companies that are looking to protect and restore biodiversity in agricultural value chains. Doug leads the coalition's work on financing regenerative systems and establishing the business case for regenerative agriculture for both farmers and for corporations. Welcome, Doug. Did I get all of that right? You did, yes. Pleasure to be here, Bernice. Thank you all. And again, thank you so much for for making time uh, to join us. And we just have a little bit to go before we go to break. So, Doug, I want to ask you a little bit more, though, about the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. What was the impetus for that organization? Sure. The World Business Council for Sustainable Development uh, came out of one of the first COP summits on the um, environment, uh, looking to bring together a you know, consolidated business voice for ambitious companies who are looking to make positive changes um, to their value chains to support environmental outcomes um, and really bringing businesses as a uh, leading voice in the solution to the environmental crisis that we face as opposed to uh, purely being a negative impact. Indeed, because typically most of us do not think of businesses as leading the way there. And again, really briefly, can you tell us some of the things or accomplishments this group has has done since the first COP? Certainly. So WBCSD has brought together businesses from all different sectors um, looking to you know enact policy reform that will support businesses as a, a cause for good. Uh, put together frameworks that support businesses in transforming their value chains to consider environmental um, impacts as well as uh, economic impacts and looking to redefine value um, for these businesses in a way that supports you know all kind of stakeholders within the uh, within the mission. Right. Is there anything notable that many of us might recognize that has come from their efforts? Certainly. I mean, I think, you know, we are a... Uh, leading voice within the, um, you know, COPS, you know, bringing together kind of positive outcomes, um, kind of pushing, you know, countries and corporates to make commitments that include environmental outcomes as well as uh, economic ones. And, you know, I apologize for, um, you know, not being as versed on the uh, the kind of history of the WBCSB. Uh, my focus is more so on the One Planet Business for Biodiversity Initiative. Um, which has been a member project of WBCSD since 2019 as a subset and fully integrated last year. Indeed. Thank you for giving us just a, a brief description of, of what they do and their significance and and, and, and certainly their, their participation in pushing 
those areas of the cop forward. We're going to be right back with our guest uh, after the break. We are with Dr. Sean Cash with Tufts University and Doug Petrie with the Rural Business Council for Sustainable Development. We'll be right back with them on the other side to make us much smarter. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, natural grocers, all central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, none mercury looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. To today's show on food production, focusing in on the intersection of environment and economics. And we are back with Sean Cash at Tufts University and Doug Petrie with the World Business Council. Uh, Again, thank you all so much for making time for us today. And so, Doug, I want to go back to you, though, and start us out by talking to us about how food production impacts the environment and what are some of the key environmental challenges today that are associated with it. And, and I gather the environmental challenges are just are really changing over time. Yeah, absolutely. Food production has a tremendous impact on the environment. Uh, currently, the food system that we have in place goes beyond the planetary boundaries. Um, you know, the impact is on climate from GHG emissions, on nature from deforestation, overuse of pesticides and synthetic inputs, a loss of pollinators, global biodiversity loss. You know, and there's a lot of emerging, you know, agricultural practices that can have, uh, that can transform these negative impacts into positive impacts on, on, um, on nature and on climate through the adoption of regenerative agriculture. So I think right now it is uh, really a critical point in our um, where we sit in a, in a food system to, you know, really consider what we are, how we are producing our food, how we are transporting our food, and how we are um, bringing nature and climate as part of those considerations um, into it. So looking to be more positive towards these, what would you know initially be considered externalities, but are really core elements of the production of food. And and so that our listeners really get a good grasp of what we're talking about, uh, can you briefly, Doug, just list the components, kind of starting at the beginning with the farm, of the food production system? Most of us know food on the plate, take, fork, spoon, eat it. Uh, we know about farms and farmers markets, but other than that, it's it's the disconnect. So can you walk us really briefly through the food production system consists of? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, food production systems really uh, can even start before the farm looking at kind of input providers um, who are developing 
um, you know, fertilizers, pesticides that are then going onto the farm uh, to support, you know, yield outcomes for, for farmers. Then you have the on-farm production, um, which can be, you know, row crops, cattle, dairy. Obviously, every food value chain has very significant uh, lead different practices that they are um, kind of, you know, adherent to. Um, from there, you go into distribution. Uh, so this would be kind of selling to an elevator or a third party that uh, will then kind of hold and deliver them to manufacturing. Uh, and then from there, manufacturing will go into, you know, the development of a, um, you know, of a product that ends up on a store shelf or in a, uh, you know, in a restaurant potentially. Um, so there are, you know, multiple different kind of food value chains and a lot of different kind of steps before it reaches the uh, the consumer's plate. Indeed, indeed. And so I want to kind of summarize that and then pull in Sean because that's more his specialty is the is the food. <laughs> but it basically, it starts before the farm, but I think I, I would like to, for the consumer, so it starts with the, the farm. The food is, is grown or the livestock is grown and cultivated. Then it's distributed to some entity that will hold it, then get it transported. So transportation is another node. It gets transported to a manufacturer or, for lack of a better word, somebody's going to prepare it or process it, the evil processing of food. (laughs) Uh, And then from processing, it goes, uh, where, Sean, can you take us from there? Um, Sure. I mean, yes, uh, we have... uh you know, food processing and manufacturing. And, you know, then these things are distributed. Most of the food we're buying and consuming in this country are things that we're buying in uh, retail environments, right? We're thinking of grocery stores, super centers, uh, increasingly at dollar stores, um, also at farmer's markets. But most of our food acquisition in the United States is through a market system, right? So these things are going from the manufacturers and processors, usually to wholesalers, distributors, and then uh, onto the supermarket shelf, right? So uh, much of our food acquisition experience is going to the supermarket, going to the farmer's market, making a decision about what to buy, uh, considering our affordability, the things we like to eat, our convenience. (laughs) Am I going to be able to prepare this to feed to myself and my family? Uh, You know, all these things before we get to that, uh, you know, food on the plate that you mentioned. (laughs) And in the fork, indeed. So between all of us here, we probably mentioned about five or six basic steps, knowing that there's a whole lot more, especially on the on the back end. That's a lot of steps in this food processing system. And it, it, it seems to me that each of those steps, even with us going to, to the grocery or the farmer's market or whatever to pick up the food, each of those steps is intersecting with various aspects of our environment. And each of those steps has an economic cost that most of us really don't don't pay attention to. And, and again, we want to just shed some more light on that. And, and, and it's important that everybody understand it's very complex to get us there to the, the fork in the plate. Now, earlier, Doug had mentioned regenerative uh, uh, farming or regenerative agriculture, which we hear over and over and over again. Can you Explain what that is, Sean, in terms that maybe the the average consumer can identify with. Explain what it is, but connect it to something that perhaps we already know or understand. Oh, um, I think I'd suggest that be something more appropriate for Doug to respond to. What Doug? Yeah, I'd be happy to to talk about regenerative agriculture. Um, and really, it's a, a holistic approach to 
farming, um, you know, as opposed to focusing exclusively on, um, you know, yields or, or some outcome. You know, regenerative systems are looking at promoting above and below ground carbon sequestration, uh, reducing greenhouse emissions through um, kind of nature, uh, protecting and enhancing biodiversity in and around farms, improve, improving water retention in the soil, uh, reducing pesticides, and uh, and you know being more efficient in uses of um, of fertilizers along the way. And I think that. Um, you know, these are kind of holistic outcomes that are looking to be generated, but there are, you know, different um, practices that help support that, be it cover cropping or intercropping, diversifying rotations, uh, you know, no-till or, or low-till systems, as well as integrating livestock onto the farm. So all of these kind of go to develop regenerative systems um, that are focused on um, nature and environmental outcomes in addition to kind of the product at the end of the system. How do consumers know that the food they're eating, or how can they know that the food that they're eating has been produced with regenerative agriculture methods, and, and why why should they care about that? Uh, well, I think that, um, you know, there are a few ways, and, and we're very much kind of in an emerging state right now. So, you know, currently, I think if you go to a farmer's market, you can certainly talk to a farmer, um, ask them about their production methods. Um, you know, are they doing regenerative agriculture? Have they heard of it or explored it in any capacity? Um, the second would be looking at um, different certification schemes along the way. You can think of the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Sean, I think you might be able to chime in here as well with some, some really great insights. Let me ask you this, though. Is it that if, if, if it's organic, then it's been farmed regeneratively? Or is it that if you buy it at the farmer's market, then it's been farmed regeneratively? Or not necessarily. Um, no one on, <laughs> on both of those. Unfortunately, it requires a little bit more, um, you know, in-depth probing and uh, and research. And there is a distinction between organic and uh, regenerative. Um, organic is looking at the elimination of all um, kind of synthetic inputs, whereas regenerative is looking at more nature-positive outcomes. So it does allow for the use of. Um, you know, minimal and considered inputs, uh, as well as a system that's focused on uh, on outputs. But I'll pass it over to Sean here because I think that he's got um, maybe a little bit better connection to the consumer. Can you weigh in on that a little bit for Sean? Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, specifically with regenerative agriculture, consumers don't really know what the phrase means. I think yep. a lot of <laughs> practitioners are still figuring out exactly uh, what they mean by that and what's in and out of bounds. Uh, but when we think of you asked about communicating this to consumers, right? And there's a real challenge there. So when we're communicating things to consumers, we want you know consumers, when we're at that grocery store or at the farmer's market or wherever else, there's a lot of things competing for our attention. And we often think about this communication happening through labels on food packaging or on a shelf, right? So uh, with the organic program, the national organic program in the United States, United States Department of Agriculture came up about close to 30 years ago now with a set of standards as to what organic meant and developed a program that, you know, translated into labeling. And as Doug mentioned, it's really about the inputs. Uh, whether or not you can call something organic and have something certified as organic depends on the inputs and the practices you use. And a lot of it's about not using certain inputs or practices. Um, and it's not focused on the outputs. And the, the, uh, the interest in regenerative agriculture is to get to that. In some ways, also regenerative agriculture and a few other things that uh, are, are really hot topics these days are also reactions to what we lost by defining organics in ways that could be communicated clearly to consumers with government standards. 
So I think the government standards are a strength. It does help prevent fraud. It does put a more common understanding on what organic means, but it also leaves a lot of things that we care about to the wayside. With regenerative agriculture, we're in a different spot, right? There are companies that are trying to play around with communicating this to consumers. It's hard to explain something as complex and as wide-reaching as regenerative agriculture in a label or on a little bit of explanatory marketing text on the side of a box or, or in 30 seconds. And we're going to go to break. Uh, we will come back on the other side uh, so that uh, Dr. Sean Cash and Doug Petrie can continue to make us smarter. But I do. It, when we come back, I do want to kind of put a period in our regenerative agriculture communication issue. We'll be right back on the other side. Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. To today's show on food production, the intersection of environment and economics. And we are back with Sean Cash, from Tufts University and Doug Petrie with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And they really are making us smarter. Now, before the break, we were trying to get a little bit better grasp or understanding of regenerative agriculture. And I, I think for me, probably the most important thing that was said is that it's not about outputs, but more about the input of what goes into that farming element of producing our food. Now, on, on one of our last shows, I think a word I was really pushing people on the, on the same issue, better communication of what regenerative farming means, because people, it's, it's a new buzzword, and there's a tendency not to grasp or not to pay attention because they don't understand it. And one of our guests used a word that I think a lot of people can identify when they said restorative. In other words, restoring farming, the soil, the farm, uh, raising the livestock back to how it used to be before it became perhaps industrialized and before perhaps a lot of things and inputs uh, were made to make it more efficient and to increase productivity. So it's kind of like going back to how it used to be uh, is, is what we, we got from there. But I want to ask you, Doug, looking at the concept of the term sustainable agriculture, and regenerative. What's the difference in, in, in those? Or can people assume we're, we're generally talking about the same thing? Yeah, I think that regenerative agriculture is focused on outcomes for soil health, for biodiversity, and for nature, and is looking to kind of replenish what was lost in a way. Whereas, you know, I think it's it gets to a point of kind of nitpicking in, uh, in definitions and sustainable agriculture can be, you know, very broad in, in a lot of ways. I think that, um, you know, regenerative agriculture could be considered under a, I guess, subset of sustainable agricultural practices, but the real core focus of regenerative ag is to um, build soil health, um, build nutrients in the soil. Um, I think that, that Sean can probably speak to the, you know, connection between nutrient density um, in, in food coming from regenerative um, farming practices. Or I know that there are a few early studies kind of coming out and showcasing that, that link there. So it's really being more additive to a, to a system in a kind of healthy and, and holistic way. Indeed. Thank you, because you, you did 
I think increase our understanding is that regenerative ag is really a subset or comes under sustainable. It's something that you do. It's part of developing a sustainable agriculture system. And so I think people can grasp that because most people have a sense of the definition of sustainable. It's something that's self-generating and that will last for future generations. And so we engage in regenerative agriculture, which is more about the inputs and soil health as we raise food, as we raise livestock. And so that then helps to develop that sustainable system. So I, I think that's probably a good way to to encapsulate it. So, Sean, can you tell us, though, about the role that technology plays uh, in promoting sustainable food uh, production and what are some of the innovative solutions or approaches that have been implemented in terms of technology to move forward our food system? Sure thing. And one thing I just want to say about technology is, um, you know, the way uh, that I as an economist define technology is any way we mix together different inputs to get the outputs that we want from a system, right? So it's not just about the newest and fanciest gadgets. It's really about any knowledge that we might have that helps us, in this case, produce the food we need to eat, right? So that can include things like regenerative and restorative practices. It also includes indigenous knowledge, as well as high-tech gadgetry that might help us better feed ourselves or better sustain the planet, right? So technology is a very broad concept indeed. And I think we often think of this very modernist, high-tech implication of technology, but it it can be much broader than that. So, you know, there's also a tension between those approaches we think of when we think about the role of technology that focus on better harmonization with our natural environments, like regenerative ag that we've been talking about, uh, and those approaches that seek to bring food production at scale into more controlled environments. Um, So things like vertical farming and other intensive indoor methods Um, or uh, something I've been working on, uh, cellular agriculture projects that actually seek to produce animal-based proteins, not in the bodies of living creatures, but in bioreactors. So these are very different visions of the future. And um, I might be a bit optimistic, but I actually think we need to actually keep researching and attempting practice on all tracks at the same time. Um, You know, we better harmonize things, sometimes going back to things we've done in the past, and seeing about what we've lost as we've moved away from things, as well as thinking about things that we've never tried before. Um, Because we are trying to feed 8 billion people, and we want to do it in sustainable ways. And I am hearing a lot about something you mentioned, and I think Doug mentioned it earlier, too. And that's going back. I th- you called it indigenous practices, and, and Doug called it something else. But it's maybe it's, it's going back to how things used to be, looking at perhaps some of the best practices or some of the best things that we can then bring forward. And as you use that term, harmonize (laughs) with some of the technology and everything. So I think that's a good good deal. Uh, But Sean, too, I want you to talk to us more, too, about how food production and the environment impact our health and what are some of the key health challenges associated with how we're currently or the conventional food production practices? Sure thing. If I could maybe step back and be a little broader also, because we've used the word sustainable a lot. Um, So we have a project here at Tufts that we call the Lasting Project that actually defines sustainability for food systems in a context that gets at all these things, that sustainable food systems have to be environmentally sustainable, right? We have to stay within our planetary boundaries. But um, health is part of that, too. If we're not sustaining ourselves and our bodies, it's not sustainable. It's not working for us. That's what we need. 
Uh, it also brings in um, social sustainability, which would incorporate things like labor practices. If we are relying on exploitative labor practices or things that don't allow us to sustain our social connections and, our, and maintain our social values, then it also isn't sustainable in the long term. We can't keep doing things that require or depend upon exploitation of people or giving up these social values. And finally, it also includes affordability. Uh, because I think at the scale of 8 billion people, we are going to be relying on market systems for a large part of our food acquisition uh, for quite a while still. And so affordability is part of how we make sure that access is there for everybody. So um, we envision sustainable food systems as really having to be sustainable across these four different pillars of sustainability. And I think that's important not just for purposes of definition or concepts, because we need to actually do a better job than we've been doing in tracking the impacts across all of these things at the same time. And this is how we're going to figure out, well, what's something that might be good for our health, but is increasing the cost of our foods versus where the win-win-win situations might be. So I, I hope that's helpful. I'm happy to talk a little bit more directly to health and environment impacts as well. But um, I think that's something important to think about when we talk about sustainable. We don't just mean the environment. It has to be sustained across all of these pillars. Indeed. And that leads me to ask you, you mentioned tension, and I guess I would call that trade-offs. Uh, and so we know there are trade-offs, but tell us about some of the, 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 the primary trade-offs between environmental sustainability, economic growth, and public health in the context of food production. Yeah. You know, ideally, we can find ways forward where we those trade-offs aren't as uh, uh, aren't binding our hands too much, right? Um, I think one of the issues that we've seen coming out of the 20th and the first 20 years of the 21st century is that we focus so much on affordability and doing things at scale that we kind of neglected some of the other um, uh, benefits uh, that we need from our food system, right? We've created new classes of environmental impacts through the use of our our, our fertilizer and pesticide inputs that we've then had to step back from uh, in the later part of the 20th century as we started to realize some of the true cost of doing that. Um, and also uh, producing foods at scale that we can afford but aren't always the healthiest things for us. So we've very quickly moved, uh, not just in the United States, but in much of the world to places where Underconsumption is not the biggest problem for many of us, but rather the health perils of overconsumption. Um, and we need to hit the right balance on both. I want to move to, to Doug now, though, and talk um, a little bit about, about the role of industrialized agriculture. I have to think that a lot of the, the businesses and companies that you work with at the World Business Council are perhaps involved in industrialized uh, agriculture as opposed to, say, the individualized farmer. Uh, but so what is the role, though, of industrialized agriculture in uh, the regenerative ag future? And also, Doug, you said that there is a positive business case for farmers transitioning to regenerative agriculture. So can you tell us more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's important to note that there is no single solution, no silver bullet that we have and no one actor that can you know, get us to a um, resilient, sustainable food system. It's going to require action from from all of uh, from all actors. I think when you talk about you know an industrialized system, it's one that um, you know we're entrenched in in currently, where we have uh, these kind of large, typically monocrop productions um, that are going into these um, large food organizations that are you know t- 
distributing them uh, nationally and, and globally. Uh, I think, you know, the OP2B coalition of 30 plus um, business members, you know, have recognized that this kind of status quo business as usual is not something that can be sustained in the long term. And it's something that uh, really needs to be uh, renovated and addressed um, to deliver those, those positive outcomes, which I think is where the role of regenerative agriculture comes in. Uh, and so I know that we're up against a break. Maybe I'll pause here and pick it up after at the business case that we can uh, bring forward. Indeed. Thank you for that, Doug. We'll be right back on the other side with uh, Doug Petrie with the World Business Council. I'm with Sean Cash at Tufts University. And I want you, when we come back, Doug, to talk more about kind of the percentage of our food that's produced by industrialized concerns as opposed to, to farmers. Thank you. We'll be right back on the other side. And we want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, The Green, Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority, the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all HEB stores, Natural Grocers, All Central Markets, Sunflower Shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years, non-mercury, with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is born certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to today's show on food production the intersection of environment and economics. And we are back with Dr. Sean Cash at Tufts University and Doug Petrie with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And they really are making us smarter. Now, Doug, before the break, and you were telling us about the, the, the business case for farmers transitioning to regenerative agriculture. Uh, but before you start that, can you give us a sense, though, of maybe what's the percentage of our food production that comes from industrialized companies as opposed to farmers and other non-industrialized companies? Um, certainly. So I don't have a you know direct figure on this. I believe it's somewhere around 30%, um, but perhaps Sean might, might have something a little bit more accurate there. Um, but I think, you know, for us, when we, when we look at the business case, um, for farmers in, uh, in transitioning to regenerative agriculture, it's one that brings together, you know, economic prosperity, positive environmental outcomes by kind of adopting and shifting resources uh, and production methods. I think that there is still a tremendous amount of risk that is, you know, assumed um, in this transition period that farmers currently are, are bearing the burden of. Um, but, you know, we recently published a report called Cultivating Prosperity, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture that looked at, you know, what would be considered a average uh, wheat farmer in Kansas. And we saw that, you know, 
while there would be an initial decline in profitability that these farmers would see over a, a you know five to ten year time horizon, they would see an increase in profitability of 120 percent versus uh, conventional um, kind of agricultural production or, uh, or you know the synthetic production that is um, currently being being used. Uh, we saw a 15 to 25 percent uh, re- return on investment for these farmers. So I think. Um, these are adding to environmental outcomes, delivering environmental and ecosystem services, but also uh, really promoting a uh, you know better livelihood for the for the farmers, which you know Sean mentioned earlier as one of the core elements of what a sustainable food system is. And you said something that I want to bring back, bring together, and, and summarize because it 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 seems to me, and you you let me know if this is correct that by transitioning to regenerative ag, it helps or should help all of us economically or financially. The farmers uh, will have greater output and make more money. And it seems to me then that that means that we as consumers might enjoy lower prices and higher quality food. In other words, what does it mean to us? Why should we care about this? Um, I mean, I think that there are a myriad of, um, you know, of positive benefits to regenerative production in, um, in, in food coming from, you know, higher, uh, higher nutrient density within, the, within food products and increased livelihoods for farmers. Um, you know, in terms of kind of the end effects on the consumer, you know, I think by and large, those prices are not, um, are not necessarily going to shift. You see a you know, kind of some margin gain on the farmer's end by reducing their reliance on pesticides and herbicides, um, which, you know, denigrate soil health, which, um, you know, adversely affect biodiversity. Um, so these are, you know, positive environmental outcomes that will kind of trickle their way down into water systems, into local communities. And in terms of, you know, the kind of consumer end of it, if you're just looking at the price per um, you know, price per product on the uh, on the plate, uh, there won't necessarily be a, a decrease there because you're seeing similar production levels um, that you would be over time from uh, from conventional production. So consumers cannot care about regenerative ag because it's going to reduce our our cost. But uh, I want to go to Sean and and he may be able to give us some happier news Sean, from an economic perspective. Sean, what are some of the benefits of promoting access to and consumption of nutritious and sustainably or slash regeneratively produced foods? And how does that influence healthcare cost and productivity? Yeah, I we we have focused in a a lot of ways and too many ways on uh, the affordability of food and sometimes the affordability of the wrong types of food, right? And again, none of this is through bad intentions, but rather where we've been able to find those wins as learning how to do things in reliable, low-cost ways, right? But that's not been always very good for our nutrition and health. So, um, And we really saw a lot of that in COVID, right? Where we saw the perils of this low cost at all costs and uh, uh, approach to things and what's often called uh, just-in-time sourcing, right? Where, you know, everything is moving fast, fast, fast. And uh, and that's not very resilient when something goes wrong. <laughs> and things can go wrong because of disruptions from a pandemic, like during COVID. Things can go wrong and are going wrong because of climate change and the impacts that has on our food production systems. So we need to think in terms of resilience. And that means doing things that are going to work 
more of the time, not just at the best of times, right? And, and that's really, I think, part of the transformation we need. And I say that with the constant uh, thought in the back of my mind that we're doing a lot of things right. It's easy to pick on the things we do wrong. But a lot of the things that we see that are wrong today in the food system are because of other problems we were fixing that really needed to be fixed. Such, so, such as? Um, you know, <laughs> in the United States, we're far more likely to die from uh, the bad effects of overconsumption and at later ages than uh, from the risks of underconsumption. We still have food insecurity and hunger in this country. I don't want to say that we don't. Right, exactly. But those impact a, a small, much smaller portion of the population than they used to, right? So with some of these problems that we're trying to address now, we need to address are also things that we have the privilege of addressing because we were doing better at some other things. So how do we keep the best features of what we've learned how to do at scale and move away from some of the things that we've been doing badly or have messed up in the process? Um, and, and I know that, you know, I think we all want to uh, see some of those same goals, but it's a different framing about how we consider some of these things. And, and some of these risks uh, posed by climate change are, uh, I think, really things that the public is still coming to grips with. I think more and more of us know how climate is impacting the amount of food we can produce. I think we're still not talking enough about how climate also impacts the quality of the food we produce. And this has a huge impact on nutrition, as well as our enjoyment of food. So uh, there's been a lot of interesting research to show that the nutrient density of some key nutrients in key crops that sustain population all over the world has been declining. So if we have lower protein content in staple plants, if we have lower zinc or iron content in some things, right, this really impacts some crucial health concerns that we still have in many parts of the world, right? Um, and, and these things are impacted by climate. I'll stop there, uh, but I could talk a lot more about climate impacts on food quality if we had time. Uh, and, and one last question on on that, though, Sean, is are there any statistics out there related to the U.S. or someplace else about decline in nutrition value of our foods? And I don't know that they are. I'm just really asking because I've heard this said over and over again as we are discussing other environmental issues on this show. Uh, and we talk about climate change impacts on air and so many different things. And many times on those subjects, it still comes back to decrease in nutritional value of our food. So I'm just wondering, are there any stat statistics out there, any research out there that we might be able to point to or call upon? Yeah, the research on this has uh, followed two main tracks. One is kind of really trying to look at the nutrient quality in foods that are being produced under different conditions in different parts of the world. Uh, and Sam Myers at Harvard is somebody who's been leading a lot of projects on this where they just, you know, using dozens of sites and seeing really how is corn being produced in this part of the world um, with this soil quality and these temperatures and this amount of rainfall and then looking at the nutrient quality of that and how is that differing from corn being produced elsewhere and looking at that in weed and other things, right? And then the other line of research, which I find fascinating, is looking at historical records and stores of some of these plants and seeing how they've changed over time. Lou Ziska is somebody who was at USDA for many years, went to Columbia University a few years ago, and he had access at USDA to some of these historical records, and nobody had really looked at that. And through a combination of changing climate conditions as well as changing practices in agriculture, again, there he saw declines in some key nutrients in some of these key staple crops that we depend on as inputs to so much of our food system. So this is a real concern. 
might seem a little less crucial, but also uh, happening very dramatically. When we look at things like tea and coffee, things that we enjoy drinking for the taste of, as well as some of the uh, potential health benefits, we've seen the same thing there. Coffee is really under risk right now, and the highest quality coffee is facing the greatest challenge from increasing temperatures in some of our key coffee-growing uh, regions in the world uh, and increasing pest pressures and other challenges that come with climate change. So again, I could go on with a lot of different examples, but it's affecting the taste and sensory qualities of the food we eat. It's impacting the nutrient uh, quality of the food we eat. Thank you so much, Sean, for bringing those examples forward, because coffee is something that many, if not most of us, can identify with. And, and again, that's our purpose with Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, is to bring these issues to the forefront so people understand them, uh, they feel informed about them, and then they can see how they're impacting their lives. And, and so you mentioned coffee and tea, so you've hit the nail on the head today. And many of us uh, here throughout the year are about you know, something freezing or something with temperature that's related to climate change that's affecting usually the availability, but more so the price of our coffee. So this really is all interrelated. You all have made us smarter today, and we appreciate that. And as always, with most of our conversations here on Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, and there's just not enough time. Starts really getting good as we begin to run out of time. So we want to thank you all. We've been today uh, with Dr. Sean Cash. Uh, an economist at Tufts University, and Doug Petrie with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And uh, Doug manages their One Planet Business for Biodiversity, where he works with a lot of businesses and, and business CEOs dealing with, studying, and trying to attack this issue of our food production from a, a, a more environmentally sustainable uh, standpoint. So thank you all again for making time for us today. You have made us smarter and we look forward to having you back with us at a later date to make us smarter. And thank you listeners for listening in today to Healthy Living Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you, and join us again next week for more on food production, agriculture, and land use, how it affects our environment and our health. Thank you. Mm-hmm.